Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Aurora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey. I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at UTS and my producer today is Anthony Dockrell. Coming up, it's been a monumental week in the media, firstly with the lifting of the suppression order on Tuesday morning, allowing the media to tell the country that something the journos have known privately since December, that being that Cardinal Pell was found guilty on child sex charges. And of course, you may have known it yourself, because if you had read overseas websites like the Welsh Post and the Daily Beast, and probably even your own Twitter stream back then, you would have got the news. So tonight we're going to discuss the media's coverage of Pell's conviction, the suppression order, and the threats by the court to take action over local news outlets who referred to the conviction in December without actually naming Pell. So from a four-letter word to a three-letter one, ITA. News this week that the ABC's board will have a new chair, and her name will be Ida Buttrose. And that wasn't a name on anyone else's radar, and it certainly wasn't a name that was put forward by the selection process. So is Ita a wise choice, or is the government still messing with the ABC and its processes? It's a kind of tricky time to be a journalist at the moment, but it seems to be a brilliant time to be a defamation lawyer. And for the couple of guests we have who used to be lawyers, it's not too late. Um, anyway, it's a tricky time to be a journalist at the moment. But yes, as I say, it's a good time to be a defamation lawyer. Tonight we ask, is defamation law impacting too much on the media's role to hold the powerful to account? All that, plus the breaking news story about an unnamed journalist at the age who has successfully claimed in court that covering crime and court reporting gave her PTSD. To help us make sense of all this, we have a glorious panel, a glorious panel. We have Margot Seville, who's a journalist with an extensive career in the likes of The Australian and Channel 9, a bit of time at the ABC, the Sydney Morning Herald, and she currently freelances, and you can read her work at Crikey. Hello, Margot. Hello, Peter. And we have Deirdre Macken. A journalist, a columnist, a witty columnist, very rare breed, the witty columnist, uh, for The Australian at the weekend. And she's been a senior writer for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Good Weekend, The AFR. The Age. And The Age. Anything else? That'll do. Okay. Hello, Deirdre. Hello. Matt Peacock, uh, who is a journalist with a long and distinguished career at the ABC. He's also been the staff elected director of the ABC board. Hello, Matt. Hello, Peter. And Anne Davies. Uh, what can I say about you, Anne Davies? Walkley Award winner, investigative journalist, Wash Post, uh, Washington correspondent for the Fairfax, and now works for The Guardian. And was a lawyer. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> so we have two lawyers. We have yourself. And Margot, you were a lawyer for a little while, weren't you? Uh, only one year. Yeah. One year. One glorious year. So you don't regret being a journalist? No. Sure? <laughs> <laughs> you sure? Okay. <laughs> this week, we were allowed to tell everybody that the world's third most senior Catholic uh, and the most senior Catholic cleric in Australia was found guilty of child sex charges uh, back in December. Now, if you've any been in anywhere near a courtroom or on social media, you will know that there's been an outpouring of anger and emotion that had been held in check with the suppression order. That order was deemed necessary because Pell was facing a second trial on similar abuse charges. Those charges were dropped yesterday, and hence the suppression order was lifted. So tonight we look at the media coverage of the guilty verdict and ask, was the suppression order necessarily in the modern age? And before we turn to how journalists have been stopped from reporting on this story, let's turn to 
uh, ye yesterday. By the nature of the suppression order, everyone in the media that needed to know that Powell had been found guilty had time to prepare. This also means that when we look at how the media covered the news on Tuesday, this wasn't a normal breaking news story. So just generally, initially, what was your take on the coverage? Deirdre, let's start with you. It was a lot of it. The coverage since it's yeah, been lifted. Since, yeah, the last few days. The last yeah, my, my impression by this morning was it was overkill. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, this has such long ramifications, and, and not just for child abuse survivors, um, and not just for Pearl. It's got ramifications for anyone who goes to church every mm. Sunday, anyone who's ever been to church on Sunday, anyone who works in Catholic organisations. What are they all thinking? I think they've they've had their trust and indeed probably their faith undermined by this whole process. So the more and it's happened at the time when the Vatican is has mm. just looked at it and Well the timing's incredible. Yeah, the, the summit well, in the yeah, Vatican. That's and, right. So so it, it, it couldn't have come at a more timely uh, moment. Um and the fact that it was such a um an unlikely case to get up according to all the lawyers and yet it's undone the third most senior man in the church. Mm. It's got sort of... It's a remarkable story. It, it, it really is. is. So I don't think it's been overdone now. Okay. Let's turn to some of the more specific uh, pieces. And let's, uh, one of the uh, one on Twitter that was getting a lot of coverage was David Maher's piece mm -hmm. in The Guardian, uh, which was a withering takedown. I'm, David, I, as we would probably all appreciate, has been waiting a long time <laughs> to write that. And in particular, the final paragraph, which I will quote... The world can now know that a little over 20 years ago, in Pell's first months as an Archbishop of Melbourne, this scourge of sex was forcing choir boys to suck his penis. Was that one of his finest works or a little bit too much? Um, what do you ah, think? Well, this is um, an interesting question and one that's being debated internally at The Guardian. Mm. Um, personally, I thought it was a fitting end to what was a very hard, hard column and a forensic column that looked at all the things that Pell had said about uh, sexual behaviour and sexual norms in, mm. in this country. Um, and he has been, as people have pointed out, a warrior for a right-wing view of, from the church. Mm. So, um, you know, I think it was a tough piece, but it was fair in my view. Mm -hmm. Margaret, what do you think? I thought it was entirely appropriate. I think that if you read so much legal coverage, you know, there's so much obfuscation and euphemism around what happens in these types of cases and the legalese can kind of overtake normal mm. patterns of speech. And I think it's good for people to know exactly what the crime was, especially in cases of child sexual abuse. Most of us are inclined to turn our eyes away from it and, and try and try not to think about what actually happens. And David brought it home. I thought it was really good. And, in fact, you yourself had a little Twitter moment this, <laughs> by, by painting a picture for us of someone kissing Colonel Pell's ring <laughs> in the backstage was, of the ABC. That and that got a lot of Twitter feed as well. Never, so you piled on as well, Margot. Never drink and tweet after dinner. But um, <laughs> yeah, There's I, a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, that, um, you know, seeing seeing those men like that who profess to be chaste and profess to hate homosexuality and who fight against it with every fibre of their being, to see them as these sexual predators and to know what they do, I think that's 
really vitally important. Mm, okay. Not all sections of the media reacted like David Marr. I mean, some sections were completely the opposite in a way. Some of Powell's staunchest defenders continued to stick with him. Andrew Bolt, uh, Miranda Devine being the most prominent, but not just those two. Um, it was quite a lot of commentary in Sky along that line, the Telegraph, the Herald Sun, and even the New York Post, a long way away in New York, uh, had a piece uh, yesterday saying that uh, it was basically in defense of Pell. I'm not sure about this, but because there was a lot of different types of commentary. And But do you think, uh, Deirdre, that we should read anything in that? I saw this pushback coming a bit from News Limited. I think it would be wrong of anyone to... Um, say that the jury or you know the court process got it wrong. Mm. Like th- that's that's the part that shouldn't be up for debate mm-hmm. amongst us or or anyone else. What what can be debated is um, the reaction to it, is the lead up to it, is the ramifications. But I don't think anyone in their right mind can say, well, the, you know, they got it wrong because they weren't in. In court, they didn't see the evidence. Mm. Oh, no well, one Andrew saw Bolt all the it. evidence except Andrew for... Bolt said they got it wrong, but anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I just don't think that's a debating point. I think it's not a debating point. No. Yeah, okay. And, and maybe, you know, uh, I don't know. What do you think? Andrew? Well, you know, this is our system. We yeah. hand the decision-making to 12 people mm-hmm. and that's how we come up with whether someone's guilty or innocent. Mm. And then people can appeal. So the only people who can challenge the process that where where the jury was directed etc is going to be the court of appeal and no doubt there will be an appeal so um, people make mistakes but this is our best effort at having a system where um, we get people mm. to judge who's guilty and innocent and what's the other alternative we could have had a judge oh well we'll get to judge judges yeah. in a second <laughs> yes indeed uh, just just as a passing question really on the way out of this one but uh, is it? I get the impression sometimes that News Limited is is a very Catholic kind of. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to be too sectarian about this. Well, Richard Eklund does call it the Catholic Boys Weekly. Yeah, is it, but is that a justified? I mean, that's just another way of criticizing, if you like, the the right of the media rather than the left, isn't it, or not? Is well, there a sectarian divide in Australian media? Do you uh, think? Well, I I'm a sort of strong believer in free speech mm. and. I feel as a principle, we have to allow the free speech for the people we disagree with. And I disagree with everything that they wrote about Pell and everything that they write about most things, actually. But, you know, they've got the right to make their point. And if we go around closing down media organisations we don't agree with, then we're left with, I don't know, the Philippines. Yeah, or Hungary or... Yes. Yes, whatever. Yeah. Okay, let's turn to the, to the legal issues that come out of this, the suppression order. So the Australian Law Council has called for a review into how suppression orders in this country work. Does what do you think, Mark? Stay with you. Does the panel th- do you think that the suppression order worked and should have been used here? Because it kind of didn't really work, did it? Well, I sort of look at it in two parts. One, there's the principle of the suppression order, which mm-hmm. I think is correct. And mm. um, you know, I think if any one of us was charged with a crime, you would want to know that principles of open justice applied to you and that you were able to be judged by Mm. a jury who hadn't been prejudiced by Mm -hmm. earlier hearings against you. So I think, you know, if we want it to apply to us, we have to allow that it applies to Pell and anybody else. So that's the principle and I think that should be upheld. Mm -hmm. But in practice, I think it's absolutely impossible and ludicrous for the judge to go around threatening to charge people when, you know, with a click on Twitter, anybody could have read that in December. 
Mm. So in the internet age, this concept of a suppression or that this kind of knowledge could be contained has been proved to be a rather fanciful notion, right, mm. Deidre? Yeah, and also, as, as one of the um, commentators pointed out, if, if you suppress the established or, or old media in Australia and let it go viral on the digital media, mm. then perhaps you're not getting the sort of coverage that, mm. that you'd want. It's It'll be... What is um, fake news or, you know. We don't, we don't utter those words in this studio. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but it'll be it'll be reported with perhaps less rigour um, mm. than it would have if you'd allowed Australian journalists to yeah. do it in their So media. I guess the question then is two things. One is what's the alternative? Because, I mean, we're all right on the same, you know, he, Powell or anyone could be us. We have a right to a fair trial, not to prejudice the, potentially mm. prejudice the jury against us. So there is a need for some form of control. But at the same time, this isn't working. So is there an alternative? And, and secondly, and these letters that have gone out from the court to the Herald Sun and other places, and the Guardian reported it very well yesterday. Um, I mean, is that, uh, where are we getting to with that? I mean, for a start, what are they going to do? I mean, so the Herald Sun ran a headline saying, censored, there's a prominent Australian who's been found guilty. There's a lot of prominent Australians mm. out there. What do you think about all that? What, mm. what is the alternative to this? Is there an alternative? Or? Okay, so the underlying principle is, you know, convictions, prior convictions, yep. are really prejudicial when mm. you're facing trial. And that's what this would have amounted to if we'd published that he'd been convicted. Mm. So there is a really big principle at stake. But... What are the alternatives? Um, one is you hear all the trials together mm-hmm. and you do it all at once. Um, now, the courts didn't do that and um, that's another principle that applies that people can choose to have, uh, defendants can choose to have their trials split. So that was one way around it. What else could they have done? They could In New South Wales, they could have had a judge alone trial for the yes. second trial on the basis that judges will be able to separate in their minds the earlier trial from the current trial, unlike jurors. Um, But it's going to be a problem over and over with the internet. I mean, it's just Mm. people are going to know what happened. Mm. Um, So I think before the courts start throwing the book at the media, Mm. maybe they need to think about what are the alternative structures that the court can come up with. Now, having said that, Judge alone trial, I kept thinking of a very British scandal yeah. where the judge at the end gave, there was a jury in that case, but they, he gave such biased directions mm. Mm. that, the, that uh, the politician was acquitted. And I thought, well, maybe that would undermine the confidence in the system if you had a, a judge judging an archbishop. Um, so, you know, that's just the counter So what you're argument. saying is nothing's perfect. Nothing's perfect, but I think we're going to have to look at how the courts handle this because it's a problem that won't go away. You know, there will be leaks all the time around the global media network. Yeah, and it does seem to be a legal problem. It's not a media problem. And the fact that they've um, launched all those proceedings against the media is a bit tough, I think, because... It's a a media problem now. Well, they've made (laughs) it a media problem, but um, I think that's a a real stretch what they've done there, um, including some journalists who didn't have any part in it. Mm. It seems like a scattergun approach mm. and it's going to consume yet more money um, from, you know, the uh, beleaguered media companies to to defend. Well, yes, we'll get to defamation in a wow. second. But, I mean, the judge was, uh, Margot, the judge was clearly livid at the media for what happened back in December. And this is a very, you know, there seems to be a payback time. 
Yeah, it does seem to be payback. Um, you know, the question is, is it going to work? Is it going to be effective? Is it going to change the way people cover trials? Not in the least. Mm. So do you, what do you think of Anne's idea that, you know, maybe, you know, you have the jury trial on trial one and then you have a, uh, have a uh, judge only on trial two? That might be an option. Well, that's kind of been part of the Jeffrey Rush case, hasn't it? Mm. The fact that it's a judge standing alone um, and he's already said that he's not going to include extra evidence that was offered up by the defence because yes. he, he didn't feel... So, you know, that's always going to be an issue with a judge alone as well. Um, yep, I don't know. I guess the courts are so bogged down at the moment. Anything that streamlines a case and saves the public money would potentially mm. be a good idea. Okay. But if the principle is you don't want the jury to know mm. what's um, yep. before the court... You don't have a jury. Then you don't have a jury or you hear it all at once mm. with one jury and you deal with it that way. Mm. You know, maybe the courts have to adapt a little bit. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's true. They're living in the internet mm. age too, right? Mm. Yeah. Yes. All right, we're going to get to defamation in a second. Let's talk about the ABC. Let's let's talk about um, the new chairperson of the board, Ida Buttrose. You were surprised? I think probably I was as surprised as everybody else. Um, one thing I wasn't entirely surprised about is the fact that the nomination panel that's supposed to choose the candidates for chair was completely ignored, mm. as more or less it has been historically since its inception, really. But um, Why is that? I mean, well, why have because the system panel? doesn't work. Okay, the system doesn't work. But this is crazy, right? So you have this... A panel that puts forward four blokes, doesn't even think about Ida Buttrose, uh, who pops out of nowhere and gets the prize. That's right. And the last time, of course, they would probably wouldn't have thought about Justin Milne unless the minister had rang him up and said, hey, why don't you apply? Um, so it's all a bit, uh, you know, of a joke. And, and of course, then there's this question of uh, consultation with the, prime, with the uh, leader of the opposition the ABC being an important publicly owned institution, we all own it, we all have a stake in it, mm -hmm. and it should be removed from party political pressures, I think, over things like the appointment of chair, and yet this consultation is, what is it? Is it a quick text? Is mm. it a phone call? So your point is a lot of these processes are a bit of a joke. Yeah. So what, uh, we'll go to... So anyway, in comes Ida, in well, comes Ida. Well, we can Ida. talk about Ida in a minute, because there's okay. a lot to say about Ida, but let's talk about the process just for a little bit longer. What needs to happen? Well, I think I'd be interested to hear what others say about this, but certainly I think that we need to have a process of selection of the chair and also members of the board that has various criteria attached to it, one of which, of course importantly, is a knowledge of public media, public broadcasting, for want of a better mm. uh, word, and and also, um, you know, a proven track record of being able to stand up to political pressure and, and some dedication to the concept of independence and uh, free and fearless media. So all of those criteria, I think, are part and parcel of... And they're um, not explicit in the process now. No, they're not even mentioned, really. Yeah, okay. And, so, and, and it needs to be a collaborative process. I mean, why shouldn't the Australian public have more of a say in this process? Or certainly uh, it be more transparent and up for grabs more. I for president. Well, you know, there needs to be much more 
engagement about yeah. the process. It needs to be removed from... Mm. I mean, it's easy to say it needs to be removed from party politics, but look at party politics now and, mm. you know, you would want it, it to be removed, removed from wouldn't party you? Politics. And so would most normal people. Okay. All right. Interesting. Well, let's open... Margot, what do you think of ITA? While we're, while we're on, let's talk about the person I know, rather than the process. Um, I've, look, I've never met Ita, but yeah. um, she's got an amazing track record in media and she's certainly run and been the chair and been board members of many, many organisations, with um, both public and private. So I think a large part of being the chairman is process. Mm-hmm. Uh, she'll be across that, about the process of running a board um, the issue, I think, for me is that that board, and particularly the chair, will get to choose the next MD. Mm. And, you know, at a time where I think, you know, I mean, obviously we're not in the caretaker period, but we're so close to an election, I think it's outrageous for the government to make an appointment like that and not to leave it to the next government. Mm. Yeah, well, that's, that's a good point. Mm. And are we going to get, we will get a new MD of the ABC. Before the election, I would uh, probably. Well, the, um, the so job is got, ad- yeah, advertised, advertised now. it, yeah. and um, in a way, the MD's job is probably more important in terms of shaping what you see and hear on the ABC. Mm. That is, uh, that person is the front line to standing up to pressure from the government. You know, that's where the calls come. Mm-hmm. The chairman has a role, which is to advocate for the ABC and, you know, arguably back up their. Um, MD, and they're also responsible for um, enforcing the Charter. Now, the Charter is a really important document. It's not... The chairman of the ABC is not the same as the chairman of a normal board. Mm. They're not answerable to the shareholder because the shareholder is the government. They actually have interposed in that, this this Charter, which is incredibly broad, and um, you need someone with real strength and backbone to push back against all the pressure that will come from the government. So is Ida that person, Deirdre? <clears throat> I, don't think she, I think she might surprise. Yeah, I think she, probably she will. But right? just going back to the process, yeah. I, I sort of thought that Scott Morrison might appoint Tina Arena as <laughs> he was so keen to get her number from Julie Bishop. But, but well, maybe she'll be next. Maybe. Next one. Yeah. But um, if it is a captain's call, there, there aren't terribly many good examples of captain call. But I... I on one level, I think Ita's a, a refreshing choice because older women generally mm. don't get a chance to mm. get into positions of power and that sends a powerful message. My main concern, and, and, and this may sound a bit ageist, but I think it applies to any director or chairman in, in Australia at the moment, is how across the digital landscape she is because... Um, she does come from a, a strong media background, but it's an old media background. And the ABC, like every other organisation in Australia, needs to cope with digital disruption and the new generations who are moving through with a completely different mindset and and usability of media. So my main concern is how across will she be of that? Because she's not a native to the digital landscape. And like most board directors of that age, and most a lot of them are that age, um, a lot of them struggle with technology, not just, you know, calling yeah, up an okay. Uber, but understanding how it plays out in their industry. So, Matt, going back to you on that, because Dave Anderson, the current acting manager, is a very a techie type of guy. In fact, the criticism of Dave would be he's not an editorial sort of guy. 
Yeah, well, you know, so was Michelle Guthrie uh, well, with her qualifications, yes. uh, okay. one would say. But, uh, and and so was Justin Milne with his His obsession with that. Qualifications. So I think the more important criteria here, I mean, really, if you look at some of the criteria for a managing director, for example, you'd have to say, I have major criticisms of Mark Scott, but a lot of people don't share those criticisms. Many of the um, faults that uh, Michelle Guthrie was attacked for were things well underway under Mark Scott. The difference with Mark Scott is that he tweeted the tweet. He walked the walk. He talked mm-hmm. the talk. He's a good operator. And people saying. loved him. He duchessed. So really, a big factor in sharing or being the MD of the ABC mm-hmm. is to to spruik, to have good PR and to, to inspire people and to deal with Senate estimates and to play the okay. media game. So Now, Ida has no problem with that. Yeah, so, that, so therefore, is this a... Are we heading to a perfect result insofar as Ida here, you know, she's all great at the front, front of house with Ida, and then you have Dave Anderson. Assuming they re, that they the appoint ABC, Dave The ABC Anderson. person, you know, who's... Yeah, and Dave would have to be the front runner at the moment. He was number two to Michelle Guthrie if she got mm-hmm. hit by a bus. Well, it turned out she did, and uh, now you've got Dave Anderson. What, and what do you think? Do you think I think um, staff would support the idea of him getting the mm-hmm. job. Do you think Whether, he's up for the job? Do you think he's good he's the right candidate? Uh, that's my view, but I don't know who else is out there. But then I was on the board that chose Michelle Guthrie, so who'd listen to me? You know, <laughs> she looked like quite a good candidate then too, and had a lot of faults, which became apparent. But you know, I think still we'll we'll only know in about the end of the year what her legacy properly is. But um, did you it, support Michelle Guthrie? It, uh, board confidentiality, but put it this way: the the process was smoothly run. You know. Um, there were other candidates, obviously, but at the end of the day, the board, I think, um, had a, a, a uniform view about what they did. Um, but look, the the thing about the point about this board is mm. that it does appoint the next managing director, and if uh, Ida mm. Buttrose is on it, um, you have others on it that really have no media background mm. whatsoever, mm. and have been put through the mill, I guess you could say, in this traumatic period yes yeah where where they've lost both the md and and the chairman i mean they're they're doing but nonetheless so what is that board going to do now is Mm. the question in terms of Mm. appointing a managing well and also just for the for you Anne and margot and deirdre you know does how do we have any inkling to know how ITA's appointment, how ITA will think about the next managing director. Well, I've got to say, I sat in a green room with her a while back when the dramatic week was happening, when Michelle Guthrie got the flick. And and the comments, the conversation that we had, I was struck by her general support for the ABC, for her sensitivity to the difficult time that it was going through. It harks back to what Deirdre was referring to, that the greatest challenge is digital. Now, I'm sure one of the factors over the appointment of Michelle Guthrie was we need somebody that's digital savvy, Mm. right? That was a major, we don't want to have another Fred Hilmer, you know, kind of thing. Um, Well, look what happened to Fairfax. So so that's the big spectre that's on everybody's brain, right? Now, Ida is alive to these things, and I remember her listening carefully to points. She was sort of saying, but but 
you know, she wasn't a great speaker, but it seemed to me that Michelle Guthrie was doing blah, 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 blah. Okay. So I was struck by the fact that, that Ida was interested and sensitive to the huge problems that are facing the ABC. It's not... We all know about the problems that have been facing commercial media and stuff like that, mm. but what's not widely discussed is is the challenges within that ABC. So just finally on the ABC, putting putting aside the personas, is the, one of the problems the charter and that it's not fully robust enough, as we've shown in the last you know year, for these times and for an interfering government? I don't think it is the charter. I think it's the government that's the problem. Okay. You know, I think the government's uh, uh, malevolent uh, against the ABC, the mm. current government. Don't think there's any argument about that. But, but government government falls out of love. They with the do, ABC. and it's not just a liberal. And government. I don't. Th- I think the charter. You know, there are things that should be changed in the charter. But I'm not a, an advocate of wholesale change unless you really know what the political landscape is, because you might end up with some nasty things in there that Pauline Hanson wants. So, you know, uh, let sleeping dogs lie is my suggestion at the moment. It's not the charter. It's the way governments are punitive over funding that is the real problem. Well, so, OK, uh, a, a superstar like Ita, back to the person, I guess, but the is she going to be great at getting funds out of the government? I mean, I, we don't really know, do we? Mm, but no, we don't know, but um, she has got charm and panache. Yes. She'll be able to get into anybody's, any politician's office. You know, Ita's here to see you. Um, mm. That'll be a no problem with the card. name. No problem with name recognition. Um, <laughs> I think that um, she's got media experience. She's got television experience, which mm-hmm. none of the other um, people did. And mm. just remember, this is where all the money gets spent. Like the lion's share of the budget is consumed by TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think she'll bring a lot to the board. The thing I, the question mark I have about her is, I haven't ever seen a stand up on a big media issue and fight for it. Now, maybe that's my ignorance. Um, I'm hoping that she will prove to be a charming, um, mm. solid advocate for the ABC who's mm. not not afraid of taking them she, on. She, she has had fights, though, hasn't she? She has with on Kerry women's Packer issues. And with all and, sorts of people. And, and, so and, and fighting for the of rights of the aged. Mm. So yeah. Yeah. even back in the 70s, you know, she was um, she prepared to pragmatic. fight for it. Did I mention her father? That's, is that sure a minus? No, no, I'm just saying, she, uh, to, to Anne's point, I think she's possibly more pragmatic than someone who would make a grandstand. You could make a grandstand. Peter, I don't think I mentioned her father, did I? Let's mention her yes. father. Well, um, according to somebody I was speaking to last night, I, I'd sort of had a, a, a vague memory of this, but her father, Charles, was actually a senior executive in ABC News for quite some time. And uh, mm. according to somebody who knew the family, Ida grew up with that. In a blood, basically. Right. You know, this she, would be the time of Duck so, Manton or someone. Well, yeah, it was. Yeah, Long time well, that's right. Well, Duck Manton was there for God Forever. knows how many yeah, years. Yeah, so that was a must lucky guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, the point is, um, you know, she may not have worked at the ABC herself, but it was uh, in her family history for sure. Mm, okay. Oh well, uh, time will tell, right? Time will tell. I mean, I think it is a strange turn of events that the chair is not part of the selection panel. I mean, that's the thing, putting aside the personas. And I spoke to a former board member yesterday who said that that selection process, it's enshrined in the Act that they have to have the process, but the Act doesn't say they have to abide by the result, Mm. which seems ridiculous, and that the whole process would have cost more north of $200,000, which Mm. is when you add in the amount of money they're about to pay out to Michelle Guthrie, (laughs) 
is a mm. big whack of money. It's a few journos worth. Yeah. Mm. You know, these and, days, and you can go back to these search um, firms and say, we want you to look a bit broader or we want to tweak the search. A lot of it would depend on what public servant wrote the qualities of the chair that they wanted, you know, mm. if it was um, very restrictive, then that's the sort of list they get. Mm, but you so. can go back and say, give us some more people if yeah. you don't like it. Well, the answer wasn't Greg Highwood anyway, was it? No. No. Well, we won't go there. We'll go there another <laughs> another show, another time when Greg pops his head up. <laughs> Let's go back to the law. So this journalism caper seems a bit hard. We all know it's, you know, not, it's not the golden age of journalism in terms of how much money we're all making, what have you. But it is the golden age of defamation, or so it seems. It seems that's the place to make plenty of dough. Um, steady work. Everyone's a winner. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to get too glib and jaundiced about it. Uh, and there are many high-profile cases, some of which we're not going to talk about, some of which we can. And one of them we can talk about is the last week's decision uh, of Chow Chat Wing uh, against the City Morning Herald and The Age, which is going to cost $280,000 plus costs, although it will be appealed. So I think that brought up a really interesting question around the defense of qualified privilege. So we're going to get a bit lawyerly here, but fortunately we have multiple lawyers in the room, so it's all good. <laughs> so Justice Wigney uh, rejected the Herald's defense of qualified privilege uh, relating to publications in the public in interest. To get that defense, the publishers had to prove that Garner took reasonable steps to establish the story was right and in the public interest. But Wigney said the journalist, quote, had adopted a, quote, sneering and deprecating tone and, and basically did him in. And so now the, uh, the, the age and the SMH are standing by Gyno and will be appealing. And in a statement, they said that John Gyno is a careful, meticulous, Walkley award-winning journalist who is globally recognized for his China expertise. And, quote, we source and check all our stories vigorously and take great pride in our role to inform the community debate. So uh, the, is Fairfax on the wrong end of this losing battle? And is there something terribly wrong with this you know, with a way we're approaching defamation in this country again in the digital age. Um, uh, okay, you. well, having <laughs> fallen foul of the qualified privilege defence myself, <laughs> um, it's a very hard defence to get up. And the idea behind it is that you do everything you possibly can, you act reasonably, but you still might have some have fallen short of being able to prove the truth of something. Mm. So in this case, the weird thing is that the judge agreed that the unindicted um, co-conspirator um, in the... the um, in this UN the bribery Ghana, case. Yeah, yes. in the UN bribery case, mm. was probably Chow Chuck Wing. Mm. That was probably who they were referring to. But what he said was, well, Garno painted it as if he was actually convicted, not uh, it was the conspirator, not that he um, was... Alleged to be the conspiracy. So the, uh, it was overwritten. Is that basically what uh, Wiggy said? Yeah, he just went a, a bit too far. Now, yeah. I happen to know quite a lot about this case because I um, worked at the ABC when we did the same program on Chinese right. influence. But coming up. Uh, <laughs> and another, yes. another coming up this week or next week, anyway. That, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we'll go. So, um, so mm. I know a little bit about it. And mm. the, the problem everybody has is how do you... I mean, short of going and actually doing the same investigation as the cops did mm. in America, how do you get beyond, um, you know, what they've got in their indictment? And so I think, you know, John really tried to do that, but you just... It's an imperfect science. And I know everybody checked everything as thoroughly as they could, 
but you just can't prove the truth of him being the person who paid the bribe. That's what the FBI is trying to do. Sure. So the so the the show was broadcast, knowing that the defence of the show was going to have to be qualified privilege. Yes. Right? Yeah, yes. that would have been conscious when you went to air. And I don't think anyone has succeeded on the qualified privilege defence mm. for many, many years. So that brings... Um, so in the UK, it's a bit simpler, right? I mean, I'm not a super expert on the UK law, but as I understand it, it's basically you'd have to show that it was in the public interest, in the public benefit mm. uh, yeah. to, to get a qualified privilege. And so is that what needs to happen here? And it's certainly simpler in the US as well, where they have a public Mm. interest, a public figure defence, so that, you know, something like this would probably be okay in the US, but it's not okay here. So I don't know enough about the British law to say whether we need to revise our... um, our, our laws, but we're certainly... Well, yeah. It's certainly... You'd be a very brave journalist to rely on... So let's boil this down, uh, Deirdre. Are our defamation laws hindering the search for truth? Well, I think they are because they were drawn up at a time when uh, the media was powerful and wealthy. Mm. There weren't many of them, and they were the chief disseminators of the information um, in the community. So... Uh, they had a lot of weight to throw around and I think the defamation laws were were aimed at protecting people against that might. Mm -hmm. Now we have a situation where the media is more and more impoverished, it's more diffuse, each of them has a smaller share of the um, community's mind and at the same time you've got very powerful forces coming up, whether they're billionaires or industries or, or powerful companies, who know that they can take out an action, not just on behalf of themselves, but perhaps as um, uh, a, a, a cautioning um, tale on behalf a, of their yeah. industry yeah. or their community or right. whoever, say, well, you guys are going to talk about this, we're going to slap you with you know, um, a writ and then we'll do another one and another one. Mm. And you can see it already in the media. You know, they're, they're going, well, we can't take on this person. Mm. Or mm. if we're going to take him on, let's make sure we're lawyered up to the gunnels. Can't do this uh, job. Uh, Margo, Peter Grester and, and, and others, but Peter Grester has been the front of it, is saying we need a new freedom of speech law, in effect, the, to, to protect the right of journalists to do their job. Is that where we're at? Absolutely. I know there's been a Senate inquiry into the future of public interest journalism and they're making a lot of recommendations about defamation law reform. And if you speak to journalists like Kate McClymont, you you know, you hear that um, it's almost impossible to get stories like Me Too up in Australia. You know, we've had one and that's gone to court. And um, in America, the ludicrous situation where someone in America was able to write a story about someone who's been a plaintiff in the Australian courts for defamation and that's been allowable but in Australia it's not, Mm. which is absolutely ridiculous. And I think Mm. Anne's point about the public figure defence is right because under that defence, I mean, obviously it's enshrined in the US Constitution, the freedom of speech, we don't have that Mm. and we should, is that you you can't get damages for defamatory falsehood unless it's made with malice. And malice is... Malice is if you knew something was wrong or you should have known it was wrong. And I think, you know, the the Chachak Wing case, obviously, that there's no malice there. That was an accident and that was a tiny error in an otherwise correct case, it seems to me. And I think that really 
they should be able to defend mm. it on those grounds. Well, the, the judge, bringing you back, uh, Matt, um, mm. took great exception to the tone of the story, which is a very subjective thing. I mean, you know, I mean, to Anne's mm. point, it, I can, maybe it was overwritten a tad, maybe a little bit too definitive, maybe, one might say, but mm. nonetheless. One so does get, the judge should talk about the tone? Is that One does that? get the impression that... Um, Judges have their opinions about the media too, and occasionally their views uh, intrude into their judgments uh, more than they might. Well, indeed. <laughs> uh, they're not the paragons of uh, wisdom and virtue that perhaps we... No, well, to go back to, to, the, to the, you know, the old media when it was powerful and now mm. it isn't. Um, mm. um, but, but it's always been a historical truth that, that judges have despise the media by and large um, because they've regarded it as uh, as a um, well I mean I'm generalizing wildly here but it's still seen as a, a an anti-conservative force or, I guess you for the state yeah. I should add that Justice Michael Wigney is a fine person and we're not defaming him no that's way. right I wasn't talking personally <laughs> no, about this judgment I no of course not no no no, no sir um, okay let's move on uh News today, in fact, The Age has been ordered to pay $180,000 in damages to one of its former journalists for psychological injuries incurred while working as a crime reporter. Uh, the journalist hasn't been named, but uh, she worked for The Age from 2003 to 2013, so I probably can all guess who she is. But she covered the gangland wars that gripped Melbourne, and she uh, went to mo- numerous crime scenes. She won many awards. And apparently she went to 32 murder scenes. So uh, this is a really interesting turn of events. I mean, I'm, I'm going two minds about it. Uh, but clearly if she's got PTSD, then that's a terrible thing. But now she's sort of, she's successfully sued the age. What do you mm. think, Deirdre? Well, the implications of the damages is that um, the age um, did something wrong there. Well, it, it failed to look after the journal. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I would suppose that if you're a war correspondent or a crime reporter... To do your job, you're going to be exposed to that stuff and Mm. there's no way to protect someone if they're going to be doing that job and you put up your hand to to do that job. It's not that she she ran into it when she was training on a, you know, regular training thing that you have to do to be a journalist. She put up a hand for the job or she accepted the job. Um, Therefore, I don't see how you could go through that job and not, or any job in journalism probably, and not be traumatised on the odd occasion. Um, she's obviously been traumatised a lot, but... Well, I, it's a tricky one because we haven't read the judgment and so... We don't know the details. The details. Yeah. But sure. it does, it does yeah. seem, um, according to the Diet Centre, which, you know, has been very active in this country and some of us have had to do with it over the years, uh, this is the first of its kind. Mm. And so this is potentially a precedent. We could, but so. there was a first of its kind with Dart, you know, a while back over uh, post-traumatic stress after covering wars, you mm. know. Uh, mm. So you don't know. People do experience a lot of um, a lot of ill effects and from being I, exposed to things that you don't I, really know about yeah. until True. a while later. I suspect, Peter, you would find if you started digging that there would be various journalists who've been paid out mm. um, quietly not having had to take it to court, mm. you know, because they... and I'm sure that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking about, you know, war correspondents mm. who've, who've gone or, you know, they've been given a soft job somewhere or whatever. Mm. That's to, how the media's handled it. To talk about DART too, the point yeah. is, and it probably does apply in this case, who knows, but 
It's how people's employer deals with it mm. in this mm. day and age. So there may well have been pleas for help and, you know, there might have mm. been all sorts of circumstances that the employer didn't react to or uh, well, no, yes, yeah. well, We don't, as you say, we don't really know what the ins and outs were. But Margot, one of the ways of looking at this, of course, is that, as we all know, journalists are doing more work, more, you know, f- turning over stories more frequently, you know, now in the digital age, feed the beast. Uh, maybe this is just a sign of things to come. Maybe it is. I've just finished reading the biography of Marie Colvin, um, mm. and um, she clearly had PTSD, but she mm. self-medicated. She was addicted to it, though. Yeah, yeah, she was addicted to it, and mm. she medicated with alcohol and God yeah. knows what. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, it just goes with the job, and, uh, you know, it's a workplace health and safety issue. Mm. Yeah, and it, it's just maybe it's just going to be a cost that's going to be built into media organisations or their insurance contracts. And the, but but the point that we're all making really is that it's um, you know being a journalist is bad for your health. Being a journalist yeah. is bad for your health, but you, <laughs> I mean that's why we have journalists, right? <laughs> Someone has to go and bear witness. Mm. Yeah, right. no, but, but that's what I mean. Yeah. It, 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 it comes mean, with the job. It doesn't mean that your employer can just sort of absolve themselves from taking responsibility for you. So Mm. when I was at Fairfax, we all went off to the tsunami and I went having no experience covering those sort of things. Mm. When we got back, we were sent off to the Mm. psychiatrist or psychologist. We had to go to two or three sessions. They sort of checked up that we were okay. Um, I probably wasn't at that great risk because it was like a one-off thing and I tended to do business and you know, have people yell at me down the phone from in That's investigations. Traumatic. Well, that is traumatic, <laughs> traumatic, but not as traumatic as seeing dead bodies. True. And I True. really don't think Fairfax had a very good system for mm. dealing with the people who are day-to-day exposed to it. They've got mm. better because yes, everyone's really aware of it. But in the old days, people mm. were just sent off and, you know, it was a badge of honour that you've been mm. to 47 murders. Indeed, and went to the pub afterwards and drank yourself stupid. Yeah. yeah. And one other element to this, I think, is, uh, I think this came out in this case, was the journalist was concerned about saying too much about it because everyone else was getting made redundant and she didn't want to be made redundant. Mm. So she was concerned about complaining. Mm. So but that is another are, factor, right? Employers aren't mind readers. No. Mm. You know, no. You have to speak up. Well, maybe, uh, well maybe, I think she did. Uh, but anyway, look, I, I, as I say, I haven't read the ins and outs of this case. But also with PTSD, one incident can can do it for you. Absolutely. So you you can have a, mm. you know, occupational health mm. and safety program of, of checking on people, but it's something that it's almost virtually impossible to stop. And AMBOs and, and police go through the same thing. So mm. maybe we should... They haven't got terribly good systems in place either, but maybe we should be included in those sort of um, industries um, mm. looking at ways of helping people cope with um, terrible events in life. Anyway, on balance, you'd have to say it's probably a good result because it puts a lot more weight now in the employer's hands. They they are going to treat it seriously because they're going to have lawyers clambering all over them if they don't. Well, Mm. if Justice Michael Wigney don't get your attention, the (laughs) PBSC case will. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. And I I should say, uh, this is about all the time we've had for... uh, for this week, but if any of this discussion we've just had causes anyone stress, uh, the lifeline don't sue. Uh, don't don't <laughs> sue. Well, sue Matt Peacock, but um, uh, the lifeline number is thirteen eleven fourteen. Uh, I it's been a great discussion. I could probably speak for another two hours. But My parking we, meters out. But yeah, you've got parking <laughs> meters. So uh, I'd like to thank Deirdre Macken. Thank you. 
Thank you. Uh, and I hope you don't get a parking ticket. So Margot Seville, thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. Anne Davies, thank you. And thank you. A, a slightly late arrival, but nonetheless <laughs> made a contribution. Matt Peacock, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. Uh, make sure you subscribe to The Fourth Estate on your favorite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media and politics and a few things in between at your leisure. Uh, we'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name is Peter Frey, and thank you so much for listening. Thank you.